there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Did you get anything out of him this time? He doesn't know about the murder, Mr. Robinson. Are you sure he understands what we're saying? Oh, he understands that you want him to confess. What he doesn't understand is why you keep beating him when he's already told you he's innocent. We're beating him because he's lying. It's been weeks. If I'm being honest, I don't think he did it. Well, unless you'd like to join him, you'll start seeing things my way. Get the tire iron. Time to have another chat with our guest. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our final episode on the 1924 death of Janet Smith. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Janet Smith started working for the well-to-do Baker family in 1923 in Kensington, England. She was hired to be a nursemaid just after the birth of the Baker's only daughter, Rosemary. She then followed the Bakers when they relocated a year later to Shaughnessy, Vancouver. It was there that something terrible happened. On July 26, 1924, 22-year-old Janet stayed home as Mr. and Mrs. Baker went out to work and run errands, respectively. The only people left in the house were Janet, baby Rosemary, and the Baker's other servant, a Chinese man named Wong Foon Singh. It would have been a day like any other, but that seemingly normal Saturday morning would come to rock the foundations of the sleepy Shaughnessy suburbs forever. Sometime after the Bakers left home, Singh found Janet dead, with what looked like a gunshot in her temple 
and Fred Baker's gun lying beside her. At first glance, it seemed like a suicide, and Janet's body was embalmed for burial before an autopsy was even performed. But soon, public outcry forced the local police to take a second look at the case, ultimately determining that Janet had been murdered. The blame started to shift to Wong Foon Singh, the houseboy, since he had been the only other one home at the time of her death. But in part, thanks to shoddy evidence handling and Janet's premature embalming, the facts against Singh didn't hold up to much scrutiny. Well, still, that didn't mean the investigators were out of options. There were plenty of other factors at play that threatened to twist the truth beyond recognition. And as this very strange case progressed, it would take a lot more effort to separate fact from fiction. In the last episode, we discussed the monumental impact that newspaper magnate Victor Odlum made on the Janet Smith case. Victor knew a profitable story when he saw one and milked the case for weeks' worth of headlines through 1924. He even outright fabricated evidence when the police couldn't supply him with enough hard facts, such as squarely placing the blame on the shoulders of Wong Foon Singh. He also blamed the Baker family for the murder because they hired Singh in the first place, using a racist, anti-Chinese rhetoric to call the murder inevitable. As the weeks and months wore on, Odlum's voice became increasingly prominent. In addition to his journalism career, Odlum had political ambitions and used his platform to call for reform. In particular, he wanted to establish protection for white women supposedly at risk from the, quote, Chinese threat. In an article titled, Should Chinese Work with White Girls?, he wrote, We pass laws to protect deer and grouse and young crabs. Isn't it time we pass some laws to protect our young womanhood? His cries for justice didn't go unheard. In fact, his racist coverage made its way all the way up to the Canadian government, and the one woman who seemed perfectly poised to answer Victor's call. Mary Ellen Smith, no relation to Janet, had made her own sort of history in Canadian politics as the first woman ever elected to the Legislative Assembly. She had originally led the campaign for her husband, Ralph Smith, a moderate trade union leader. He was first elected to the British Columbia Legislature in 1898, then rose to the level of Canadian Minister of Finance by 1916. Mary Ellen was very involved in her husband's work. She worked for several Canadian women's rights groups and the Canadian Red Cross, and would even make speeches on her husband's behalf when he was unavailable. So, by the time Ralph died in February of 1917, Mary Ellen was much beloved by her late husband's supporters and won his seat in the legislature by a landslide. I wanted to thank you all for your support in winning back my husband's seat for the Liberal Party. I'm sure you can all understand that this has been a trying time for myself and for my family. We have scarcely had time to grieve before getting back to the work my husband started. I can only hope he's smiling down on me right now. Because not only did the women of my fair city stand behind me, the men were there for me too. 
By 1921, she had become a cabinet minister, eclipsing even her late husband's political role. As the first woman in her political sphere, she was very concerned with the plight of women and girls in British Columbia. Her campaign slogan had even been, women and children first. So it's no wonder the Janet Smith case had greatly disturbed her. Unfortunately, like newspaper magnate Victor Odlum before her, Mary Ellen used this case for a racist agenda. She was particularly upset at the Baker family for employing a Chinese man in the same house as a white woman. Rather than focus on the possibility that a killer had gone free, she zeroed in on the racist notion that Chinese men were prone to violence. I have here the names of 28 white servant girls who have come to me looking for comfort after quitting their homes. Mother Mary Ellen, they say. I am terrified. I am terrified that I will become another Miss Janet Smith. Their employers refuse to shield their gentle nature from the unwelcome advances of their co-workers. Chinese co-workers, that is. Minister Smith, what exactly are you saying? That these Chinese men are a menace, sir, a menace. And yet, because their labor comes as less of a cost to their employer, these families will choose to dismiss a white woman before they will dismiss an Asian man. Can you imagine, sirs? What would you do if your daughter expressed concern to her employers that her purity or her life may be in danger, and instead of being protected, she is relieved from her employment? And 28 women expressed this same concern to you? That, or a variation thereupon. I do not know whether it is a panic among them or not, but if such discrimination were pushed to extremes, it would be a serious matter for our own white women indeed. In November of 1924, Four months after Janet's death, Mary Ellen introduced the Janet Smith Bill to Congress. The bill was an amendment to Mary Ellen's own Women and Girls Protection Act of 1923, and it would make it illegal for white women to be hired in the same building as Asians. While it was admirable that Mary Ellen tried to take action to prevent future murders, her solution was incredibly racist. Her idea of taking care of women and children came largely at the expense of people of color. Oh, let's be clear here. When Mary Ellen talked about putting women and children first, she meant white women and children. This became more and more obvious later in her career when she openly supported the eugenics movement. Mary Ellen and the eugenics movement only wanted white, able-bodied, and neurotypical people to have children. She even later supported a bill that encouraged the sexual sterilization of so-called feeble-minded people. So it's a good thing that the Janet Smith bill never came to pass. In addition to its obvious racist bent, it violated the Anglo-Japanese Treaty of 1911, which prohibited discriminatory legislation against Japanese people, who would have been included under the Janet Smith bill. Though this might have been a small win for Chinese workers like Wang Fun Sing, 
the racist rhetoric in Shaughnessy was only about to get worse. In episode one, we talked about what happened to Singh on August 12th, 1924, a little over two weeks after Janet's murder. In order to secure a confession, Singh had been kidnapped by a private detective named Oscar Robinson and held for several hours in the detective's office. Although the kidnapping succeeded in terrifying Singh, it failed to get him to confess to Janet's murder. This was in part due to Singh's limited knowledge of English. Singh likely had no idea what Oscar wanted from him, no matter how long he was being held or how violent Oscar got. The kidnapping was a bad move on multiple levels. The Point Grey police were working outside the law to follow a biased hunch. Additionally, by torturing Wang Fun Singh, they were effectively discouraging the sole witness to the murder from ever cooperating with the investigation. Not only would they not get a confession, Singh would undoubtedly be hesitant any time he was questioned about Smith's death. Unfortunately, as disastrous as the first kidnapping turned out to be, it wasn't enough to dissuade others in Shaughnessy from doing the exact same thing. We'll discuss who kidnapped Singh the second time after a brief message. And now, back to the story. On July 26, 1924, in Shaughnessy, Vancouver, a nursemaid named Janet Smith was murdered in her employer's home. Suspicion quickly fell on her co-worker, Wong Foon Singh, primarily due to his race. People in the town were determined to get him to confess. Order! I will have order in this meeting house. What's the plan, Malcolm? What is our organization going to do about Wong? It is becoming clear that we can no longer afford to stand by and let the wheels of justice turn on their own. The Chinese man who murdered young Miss Smith has fallen through the gaps yet again. So how do you propose we go about getting a confession from the bastard? I propose we take Mr. Wong from the streets and keep him here, in our meeting house, until a signed confession has been produced. Didn't the police already try for a confession? The man doesn't speak English, Malcolm. Which is why we will procure another Chinese man, one who understands both his backwater language and our own. We will not fall into the same short-sighted plot of our predecessors. And we will not release Wong until we have exactly what we need. Is everyone gathered in assent? Aye. Anyone opposed? We will proceed with the plan tonight to secure justice for Janet Smith. I hereby declare this meeting of the Shaughnessy chapter of the Ku Klux Klan adjourned. By spring of 1925, the Ku Klux Klan had inserted themselves into the murder investigation. Technically speaking, the KKK were not welcome in Shaughnessy, but they did have a meeting house in a rented mansion only six blocks away from where Janet had been murdered and operated openly within the community. Most of the local police tolerated their presence because the chapter was relatively small. Additionally, the local objections to the KKK were trivial at best. Public opinion at the time held that the KKK were merely American transplants who took their role as vigilantes too seriously. In other words, they were seen as more of a laughingstock than a real threat. On top of this, several members of the local police force were KKK members themselves, further discouraging officials from taking action against the group. 
Private detective Oscar Robinson and his son William were strongly associated with the KKK, if not members, as well as police detectives Sam North and James Hanna, and special prosecutor Malcolm Bruce Jackson. Malcolm had led the second inquest into Janet's death that had ultimately determined she had been murdered. That's a pretty clear conflict of interest there. Conflict that became worse as time went on, and the police were unable to produce any alternative suspects. By March of 1925, with Janet's murder still unsolved eight months after her death, the KKK were getting desperate to pin the case on Singh. So on March 20th, they came to the baker's front door. It's not known whether or not the bakers were home when Singh was jumped, just outside of 3851 Osler. But he had been seen as he was taken away by men in white hooded robes. The bakers reported him missing shortly thereafter, so it was unlikely that they had anything to do with the kidnapping themselves. Despite the reports of his sudden disappearance, the police were slow to mount an investigation. When they did finally get the ball rolling, it was easy to figure out where the men in white robes had taken Singh. In fact, Attorney General Alexander Malcolm Manson knew exactly where the kidnapped Singh was kept, just six blocks away at Glenbray Manor, the KKK's rented meeting house. Unfortunately, Attorney General Manson didn't want to send in a rescue party quite yet. Come in. Attorney General Manson, sir, the neighbors of the Osler place reported seeing men in white hoods dragging Wong Foon Singh away from the premises. Should we send someone to check on Glen Bray? Not yet. Sir? It's only been a few hours. Perhaps they found something that our men could not find on their own. But aren't you concerned they might want more than a confession out of them? Whatever happens, happens. It's simply out of my hands right now. They could lynch him. Which would be a shame, no doubt. But in the end, they're just speeding up the process. If he does confess, we would seek the death penalty anyway. Does it really matter where the man is hung? But what if he's innocent? And what if he isn't? I'd rather risk the death of one innocent man than see a monster go free. Besides, officer, they won't kill him. I'm sure of that. Sadly, Alexander Manson was in league with the Klan. He knew about their plan to torture a confession out of Singh, and while he didn't actively participate in the torture, he certainly didn't do anything to stop it. The rolling snowball of racism in Shaughnessy, Vancouver, was growing by the day, infecting the media, the public, and officials alike. This incredibly prejudiced outlook was both stifling the investigation and allowing a possibly innocent man to suffer a terrible fate. So with no one willing or able to help him, Singh was trapped inside Glen Bray with the Ku Klux Klan. And it wasn't just for a few hours like his first kidnapping. No. This time, Singh was held for six whole weeks. Of all the turns the Janet Smith case took, this was perhaps the bleakest. This time around, Oscar Robinson didn't make the same mistakes he had made during the first kidnapping. He had hired a local man named Wong Foon Sien, no relation to Singh, to translate for him. Sien was an interesting individual. Later in his life, he would be known as a prominent journalist, labor activist, and outspoken leader for Chinese civil rights in Vancouver. 
he fought against discrimination of Chinese Canadians and even became known as the spokesman for Chinatown. But in 1925, he was a fresh-faced 26-year-old just out of college who took a job as a court interpreter for the Vancouver police. Since several local constables were KKK members themselves, it's likely CN landed on the Klan's radar through his work with the courts. From there, CN would have been recruited to translate for Singh during his capture. It's unclear why CN thought working with the Klan was a good idea. Perhaps it was because his payment outweighed his moral objection, or he believed that Singh was guilty of murder. Whatever CN believed, he would have been witness to the Klan's incredibly cruel treatment of Singh. They fractured his skull, broke several of his ribs, and deafened him in one ear. When they finally released him on May 1, 1925, after a month and a half of abuse, he still wasn't out of the woods. The KKK left him to wander the streets, lost, injured, and alone, until he was picked up by the Point Grey police and immediately put in Ocala prison for suspicion of murder. And remember, he was being jailed by some of the exact people who had just kidnapped and tortured him for the prior six weeks. Even if Singh had killed Janet, his treatment up to this point by vigilante police had been crueler than any punishment that came in the form of a prison sentence. But because the machine of racist propaganda had continued to turn even during his abduction, he still had to stand trial for the murder of Janet Smith. The trial started in the summer of 1925 and dragged out for months. Singh spent the one-year anniversary of Janet's death in prison. By October 1925, the case against Singh was thrown out for lack of evidence. The only thing connecting Singh to the crime was his presence in the house. Otherwise, nothing at the crime scene itself lent direct evidence that suggested Singh was the murderer. And so, finally, after months of racist vigilante torture and sitting in a jail cell as he stood trial for murder, Wong Foon Singh was free to go. Amazingly, after all he had been through, Singh's first move as a free man was to return to work for the bakers. This did make a strange sort of sense for Singh. Remember, Singh didn't have much of a safety net in Shaughnessy. His former employers were the people that he knew best, and after months without income, he could use the work. He worked for the bakers for a few months to save up. Then, in March 1926, he returned to his family in China. Unfortunately, we don't know much about what happened to him when he returned to his home in Fujian province. The Point Grey police had followed Singh as the prime suspect in Janet's murder for so long, all other leads had gone completely cold by 1926. And thanks to their botched investigation directly following Janet's death, there was very little physical evidence to go on after Singh's departure. And so, 95 years later, the Janet Smith case remains officially unsolved. But even though Janet was failed by the Point Grey police, there are still some possible answers to be found today. It just takes a little more digging. 
Up until this point on the show, we've been a little vague about what it actually was the bakers did for a living that could afford them two servants and a comfortable lifestyle in Shaughnessy. Although the bakers gained some notoriety after their nanny was murdered and the case remained unsolved, Fred and Doreen managed to stay out of the spotlight. But the bakers had a dark past of their own that may have had a lot more to do with Janet's death than many suspected at the time. We mentioned before that Fred Baker owned an importing business that operated in Paris and London, which is true. But if his business was in Europe, it doesn't explain why he uprooted his family and moved to Canada in 1923. The truth was a little more sinister. Fred Baker ran what was partially an above-ground pharmaceutical importing business. But where he really made his money was international drug smuggling. The importing business was largely just a front for moving large quantities of drugs, like opium and heroin, into England. Fred was able to make his fortune this way for several years before Scotland Yard started to catch on. This may have been the reason why the Bakers moved to Paris in April of 1923, shortly after they hired Janet. But even that move wasn't enough to shake Scotland Yard off of Fred's tail, which is why the Bakers escaped to North America, an ocean away from suspicion. Fred, darling, so good you're finally home. What do you say we leave the baby with Janet and take a night to visit the opera? I hear Stravinsky is conducting tonight. No, Doreen. Tonight we'll be packing our things. Packing? What do you mean? I just received a distressing telegram from my contacts in Kensington. Scotland Yard is moving in. They're shutting down operations in London, and we could be next. Quiet, darling. Janet's in the next room. So what are you going to do? My brother Richard has a house in Vancouver where we can lay low. It's in a lovely neighborhood, and he and Blanche will be out of town for the next few months. He has generously offered it to us as long as we keep quiet. We can take Janet and the baby and settle there long enough for this to blow over. But we've only just settled into France. Don't you think Janet might be suspicious that we'll have to move again without a chance to wish her friends farewell? The girl's got a good head on her shoulders and a comfortable enough salary. If she knows what's good for her, she won't have any questions. And she won't tell anyone where we've gone. If not, there will be plenty of decent nursemaids in Shaughnessy. The Baker's shady dealings might have actually had a big impact on Janet's death. Although this angle is mostly speculation, it does make a lot of sense. One of Fred Baker's old drug rivals may have come back to haunt him, or even frame him for murder. If Singh hadn't been in the house at the time, it might have even worked. Well, think about it. The gun used to kill Janet belonged to Fred, so he would be the next obvious choice for a prime suspect. Although Fred was out at the time, he could have easily returned early, especially because he knew when his wife would have been out of the house. Unfortunately, forensic science wasn't good enough in 1924 to establish a narrow window for the time of death. Plus, since nobody outside the house heard the shot, there were no corroborating witnesses to pinpoint the exact time the gun was fired. So the real killer would have had to sneak into 3851 Osler while the Bakers were away, find Janet in the basement, 
pick up Fred Baker's gun, kill Janet, and then sneak back out of the house without running into the houseboy. All to frame Fred for her murder? It's a bit of a stretch. And there's no real evidence to back this up, other than a lack of other possible suspects and Fred Baker's suspicious past. The absence of suspects is perhaps also limited because there was only one witness whose testimony was corrupted by racial bias and countless hours of torture. This opens the possibility for a popular theory that Janet Smith wasn't even killed in the house at all. If this were the case, perhaps the killer disguised themselves in some way to draw Janet out, dressing as a postman, for one, or perhaps one of Mr. Baker's work colleagues. Or, even better yet, knowing Janet's proclivities, the killer used a bit of flirting to catch her interest first. Be there in a tick. I just have to put the baby down. I, can I help you? Pardon me for intruding, miss, but I couldn't think of a better way to meet you face to face. You see, I've seen you with your friends at the park and I've been deeply entranced since the moment I set my eyes on you. I'm sorry, sir. Do I know you? I trust you received my letters. It can't be. You're my secret admirer? I trust you're not disappointed? Oh, no, sir. Not at all. I thought maybe one of my friends was playing a small joke on me. I never thought there'd be a real man on the other end of those letters. And a handsome one at that. You have such a way with words. Well, you know me, but I'd love to get to know you. If you have a moment, why don't we go for a short walk and you could tell me all about yourself. Well, I I don't know. I I should probably tell the houseboy I've gone. Nonsense. It won't be long. Just a quick stroll around the neighborhood is all. Don't you get to take a break? I suppose a few minutes of fresh air couldn't hurt. As soon as the killer got her outside and out of sight of the neighbors, he could have shot her and snuck her body back into the basement. Well, that would explain the lack of blood on the walls and floors of the basement, as well as why Singh heard what sounded like a car backfiring outside just before he found Janet's body. But this theory still runs into a few familiar problems. In order to pull off this stunt, The killer would still have had to sneak into the house and steal Fred's gun before ever luring Janet outside. Then, after he had murdered her, he would have had to sneak the body back through the house, passing in the kitchen and into the basement without making any sort of ruckus. Which means the murderer would need to have intimate knowledge of the Baker house layout in order to navigate these difficulties. Which one man in particular would know better than anyone else. One man who had a keen interest in hiding his past. One man who had already proven to have thought himself above the law. And that man was Fred Baker himself. We'll explore the theory that Fred Baker murdered his nursemaid after this. Now, back to the story. In examining the murder of Janet Smith in July of 1924, one thing seems apparent. The murderer, whoever they were, seemed to have had an intimate knowledge of the Baker household. 
The use of Fred Baker's gun suggests the killer knew where to find it. Additionally, the fact that there was no blood spatter on the basement walls suggests that Janet was killed elsewhere before her body was placed in the basement. Which opens up the possibility that the killer was none other than Fred Baker. Fred knew that Singh and Janet would be the only ones in the house that day, and he had the keys and the layout of the inside of his home more readily available. Plus, he would know Janet's schedule had her working in the basement that morning. He would have easy access to his own gun and a plausible alibi of being at work, so neither Janet nor Singh would expect him coming home early. Still, this begs the question of motive. What would Fred have to gain by killing his nursemaid? Well, there could be a drug connection here as well. Well, maybe Janet had found out about the smuggling operation, and Fred felt that he had to keep her quiet about his location any way he could. He couldn't risk her sending a telegram back to Scotland Yard. Oh, Mr. Baker. Oh, you gave me such a fright there. I didn't expect you to be home so early. I believe I forgot my haversack. Ah, here it is. Right on the wall, where I left it. Say, Janet. Yes, Mr. Baker? You wouldn't have happened to have heard the conversation the missus and I were having last night, did you? No, of course not. I mean, of course, I knew you two were conversing, but I make a habit of it not to listen. Good. Good. And you didn't see the telegraph that was left on the kitchen table either? I saw it had been cleaned up. No, I didn't clean it. I mean, I don't know about any telegraphs. Maybe it was Singh who cleaned it up? Perhaps. But I'm afraid there's just one problem with that theory, Janet. What's that, Mr. Baker? I don't believe you. However, like many theories in this case, there isn't much concrete evidence to back up the suspicion that Fred Baker killed his nursemaid. Janet was an avid journaler, and she made no mention of uncovering a drug plot by the Bakers in her diary. And there's nothing to suggest that Fred didn't show up at work that morning, which makes the Fred Baker theory appear to be just another example of the tabloid speculation that surrounded this case. Which leaves us back at square one, with many different possibilities but no concrete proof. But there is one possible theory we haven't covered yet, one that involved an actual confession. In 1984, author Edward Starkins wrote the most complete work on the Janet Smith mystery to date in the book, Who Killed Janet Smith? To research the book, he talked to several people who knew Janet and the Bakers in 1924 to try to put some puzzle pieces together. 60 years after the murder took place. One of his most startling discoveries was made while talking to a woman who had been friends with an unnamed nurse back in the 1940s. The nurse had worked for a man named Jack Nickel, the wealthy son of the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia. She had been at Jack's bedside as he was dying, and he allegedly told her that he had been the one to kill Janet. I'm afraid the poor chap hasn't much time left. Doctor, is there nothing more you can do? I'd say now is a good time to call a priest. We must give him his last rites before it's too late. 
I may be dying, you two, but my hearing hasn't gone yet. And I'm not a religious man, I'm afraid. <laughs> the priest would do me no good. Are you sure you don't want someone to see you off? I only have one confession to make. A confession that may very well condemn my mortal soul. But I must get it off my chest before I can depart this world in peace. Doctor, if you would leave us alone? Of course, Mr. Nickel. You wish to confess to me, Mr. Nickel? I'm afraid I can reach no others in time. And you have been so kind to me as I lay dying. I do not believe it is in me to face anyone else but my steadfast nurse. Of course, Mr. Nickel. Take your time. It had all started on July 25th, 1924, a Friday night in Shaughnessy. Highcroft Manor, the former home of Fred Baker's sister-in-law Blanche, was hosting a party. Even compared to 3851 Osler, Highcroft was lavish. With its two-story Roman pillars supporting a massive portico out front and gardens peppered with statuary, Highcroft was elegant and obviously expensive. There, the spirit of the Roaring Twenties was in full swing. Jack Nickel had been invited to the party by one of Blanche's sisters. The two well-connected socialites were an item, but went their separate ways as the booze flowed and the party got more and more raucous. According to Stark and Source, as the night went on, the Highcroft party devolved into a full-on drug-fueled orgy. Blanche's sister lost Jack in the crowd, and when she finally found him again in the bathroom... He was kissing Janet Smith. Now, if Janet had really been there that night, it's not clear how consensual her liaison with Jack would have been. She was flirtatious, sure, but in her diary, most of her relationships had been fairly chaste. So whether Jack had come on to her at the party politely or forced himself on her is up for debate. Whatever Janet's reciprocation had been, Blanche's sister didn't take kindly to it. According to Jack, she freaked out, pushing Janet back into the bathroom tub, where Janet's head hit a protruding spigot and started gushing blood. Oh, God. Oh, God, she's dead. What did you do? Well, if you weren't trying to drown yourself in that hussy's face, this would not be a problem. Do you... Are you really only thinking about that now? Jack, she's just a nursemaid. There's plenty more of them out there. My father, no one can find out about this. We have to do something. Jack, you're losing it. I'll tell everyone it was an accident. No one's gonna raise a stink about her. You don't understand. We'd be ruined. We have to hide the body. You, you killed her. You have to help me. Ugh, and touch that thing? Jack, darling, you've really had a few too many. Although Janet's death seemed to have been accidental, Jack couldn't risk his father's reputation by association. In the version of the story that was later related to Starkins, Jack took Janet's body back to her home on Osler Street and left her in the basement to be found by Singh the next day. Here are some things the Starkins theory does adequately explain. First, why no gunshot residue was found anywhere on Janet's body, despite apparently being shot in a small enclosed basement. Secondly, why her head seemed more like it had been caved in from behind than shot from the front. Third, 
why no blood spatter was found on the walls or ceiling in the basement where she was found, and why there was less blood around her than expected. And last, why the constabulary's evidence gathering had been so bungled. If the son of a rich and powerful politician were involved, it would be a lot easier to pay off anyone handling evidence to be a little less diligent. But there are just as many holes in this theory as there are explanations. First, and most obviously, it would have been strange for the bakers not to notice Janet's absence that morning, especially when chores like feeding the baby would have to get done before the bakers left for the day. There's also the problem of the party itself. Other than Jack's apparent confession, there was no one else who corroborated the story. And although Highcroft Manor was never formally searched for evidence, no one reported any blood in the bathtub where Janet was allegedly killed. Jack himself also had an alibi. He was out of town at the time and even testified in the 1920s that he was completely innocent of Janet's death. And while he could have snuck back into town to attend the party, it's not very likely. Strangely enough, the Jack Nickel theory seems to have stemmed from a local psychic at the time, a woman named Barbara Orford. Barbara had made her reputation by dreaming up revelations about various prominent community members and politicians, then attempting to turn those revelations into headlines. That's right, darling. I was there. Saw the whole thing, from the hors d'oeuvres right down to the bareback orgy. Ms. Orford, I thought you said this came to you in a vision. Well, of course. I was astrally projecting at the time, but I saw Jack push that girl right into the spigot with my own two eyes. Are you getting all this down? Now, we have to remember that this whole story had been related third-hand to author Edward Starkins. He heard it from someone who heard it from a nurse who heard it from Jack on his deathbed. Additionally, we have confirmed historic records of Jack denying any involvement in the Janet Smith case. So, as salacious as this particular theory may be, it's not our golden ticket. So, who really was behind the death of Janet Smith? Unfortunately, thanks to the complete mishandling of her autopsy and the police force's single-minded investigation of Wong Foon Singh, we might never have the full story. But for my money, I think it must have been Fred Baker. He knew his way around the house, and since Janet knew him well, she may not have thought to fight back until it was too late. Mm, I'm not so sure about that. I think there's just so much more to the story than we could even guess at. Janet must have been killed somewhere else and then placed in the basement by her killer. That's the only thing that all the forensic evidence we have really supports. But I doubt it was someone like Jack Nickel. It was probably a criminal associate of Fred Baker's looking for some type of twisted revenge. That's a fair theory. I'll agree to disagree. Honestly, the most tragic part of this story is that Wong Foon Singh had to suffer through so much despite his innocence. Not only did the torture he endured change his life forever, it also shifted the blame enough to let Janet's real killer go free. It really goes to show that when you go into an investigation with racist preconceptions about who the real killer is, you might let the truth slip away.
Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Jordan Lyric and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, in alphabetical order, Rebecca Aarons Diamond, Freddie Beckley, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Sky King, and Steve Pinto.